Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. It is time for Congressman Mark Pocan here on the Tom Hartman Program. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus along with Pramila Jayapal. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Glad to be here today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm uh, doing the show from home today, by the way. Uh, in fact, we're as many of us as possible who can work from home. We're trying to make that happen. And I'm, I'm the first because I've got this uh, portable rig here. And I'm wondering how you and the rest of Congress are responding to this, particularly now that you've got, you know, a half a dozen of your members in self-quarantine. And this seems to be ripping through the country. Yeah. I mean, you know, this I think we're all learning day by day what we need to do, and we know that the measures are going to be increased, and it's going to get worse before it gets better with what's going on. And certainly here in in Washington now, they've stopped tours, they've stopped, someone has a meeting, they have to be escorted into any of the office buildings. Um, That will essentially, I think, stop meetings. Many uh, offices are starting to talk about working remote, because if you can't have meetings here anyway, we can do much of the work remotely, assuming the computer network will hold up uh, to that, which I think has still got to be tested You know, we are waiting to do a a big recovery package for families around the coronavirus, but having some issues right now with the Republicans and trying to finalize this. But, you know, there are still so many concerns. I I think every single day, Tom, I have briefings on this. We've had chances to talk to people from Dr. Fauci, head of the FDA, CDC, go down the list. Just, you know, we're way behind where we should be. Uh, A lot of decisions should have been made a month ago. We're playing catch-up, but... We've got a lot of issues to deal with, and because of it, you know, we know it's going to be worse before it gets better. Obama's former Ebola czar, Ron Klain, was on Rachel Maddow's show a couple nights ago, and he said that Trump had outsourced and privatized the testing, that in the United States we don't have the, the WHO tests available because they're made by, this isn't what he said, this is my, those were his words, outsourced and privatized. And he said it, it had gone to two companies exclusively, to Quest and to LabCorp. And I saw an article this morning or yesterday in the Financial Times that those two companies reported yesterday proudly that each company had tested over a thousand people yesterday. Uh, the CDC had tested 88 people uh, officially and that Trump gave them $1.5 million to speed up development. So in the next few weeks, we should have more test kits available rather than taking these test kits that every other country in the world is buying from this German company or they're licensing manufacturing within their country from the German company, the WHO tests. Uh, What do you know about that? And is what I just said, to the best of your knowledge, accurate? Well, uh, it's one of the many problems is how they've dealt with this. So we have not gotten a straight or direct answer, and we have asked it, why we didn't just go with the World Health Organization kits. Uh, we were given something about the health network in the United States. But right now they're trying to come up with telling you the number we had this week is there's 2.5 million test kits available. That'll cover 989,000. Here's what they're not telling you, and they won't tell us, and we just got a response back today from the CDC on, um, our capacity nationwide in all labs, public and private, right now to process tests is 25,000 a day. So even if you have enough 
capacity to test 900 or enough test to cast to test 989,000 people, we can only do 25,000 a day unless we ramp up that testing. So we are currently trying to ramp up more private labs and other public labs to be doing this, but this should have happened weeks and maybe uh, months ago, not should have happened in December. Right now. <laughs> yeah. So this is, and to be fair, Tom, American Enterprise Institute fellow, or I'm not sure his official title, but Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the Food and Drug Administration under Donald Trump, has been the best person out there talking about this. He's the one who I'm getting these numbers from because I can't get them from any government agency. So he's actually tracking this, and essentially CDC confirmed that he's probably right but probably is because they don't know the exact number or they're not willing to share it. So there's so much that's wrong going on. And then also, Tom, um, uh, something I think you're familiar with is uh, we've uh, heard from a loved one of someone who has a loved one at 75 miles from the Iranian border at a military base, a U.S. military base, uh, five miles away from a, a city in Afghanistan that has five coronavirus cases or had five coronavirus cases, and we're hearing a bunch of uh, soldiers have flu-like conditions, testing negative for the flu, but we don't have coronavirus tests for those folks. And, you know, that's unconscionable, right, at this point. And we were notified that, no, there are no tests available in Afghanistan right now for our military personnel, as well as other places. So there is just so much wrong about the response around testing. Also, Ron Klain has said we got to proactively test people, anyone with conditions um, in a hospital or any, any health setting, as well as health professionals. We're not proactively doing anything because we don't have the capacity still to do this. So there are so many things wrong, Tom. I don't know if I can say your single statement is indicative of the problem because there's many problems. And I actually think right now we have to increase lab capacity, private and public, as much as possible because of all the balls that were fumbled in weeks earlier. Well, and, and my understanding, and I can't point to a single source for this, but is that had the FDA merely certified the WHO test for coronavirus, there, you know, it, which could have been done at any point, it could have been done back in December when it was first rolled out, then everything would have been good. But because the FDA has refused to certify that test for coronavirus, even if Michael Bloomberg were to buy a million of those test kits from that German company and drop them by helicopter over New York City and everybody tested themselves, and these are relatively instant tests, by the way, you know, 15-minute result, and everybody tested themselves, you couldn't use the results of that to, to get out of work, to go to the hospital, to see your doctor, to, to do anything, because it's not certified by the FDA, and so the results are not legally meaningful. And that seems to be the, the roadblock here. And, and until, you know, now I guess Quest and LabCorp have now had their tests approved by the FDA. So they're now rolled out, but they're just starting to manufacture these things in the United States. Well, and there's new test kits coming out that'll be faster right now. But I, I think the, the fair thing I can say, Tom, is um, we have not gotten an answer. So I can't definitively tell you right why they didn't approve the World Health Organization test. But had they approved it at the time, they would have. Our numbers would have been higher for instances in the United States four and six weeks ago, but we would have acted sooner to lessen the, the spike we're going to have reported very soon in the United States. So the delay and in it was reported with on NPR. Properly, Forgive my inter interruption. We, we have a slight no. lag here because I'm doing this from home. Sure. Uh, it was reported, and we've got a minute to the break. I just got a cue. It was reported on NPR, and I haven't heard corroboration of this, and it kind of went away, but it was reported on NPR day before yesterday that Donald Trump had ordered, essentially, a roadblock, you know, not certifying the test kits or whatever, that he didn't want people tested because he thought high numbers of infections would hurt his chances of getting reelected in November. I think that uh, there were many bad decisions made because of that, also not trying to spook the markets and a lot of other things. He bet that this wasn't as bad as it was, and uh, from a failed casino owner like Donald Trump, he made a bad bet. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, I just, he made the wrong bet. He thought this would go away, and as a failed casino owner, he, he just made a wrong bet on this, period. Yeah, yeah, and uh, surprise, surprise, uh, after six bankruptcy. I mean, who bankrupts a casino, right? Okay, right. I, I'm, exactly. I'm done with my questions, and, and my apologies to all our listeners for taking so long. We'll, uh, I, I will be tossing you to, the, uh, to our callers as soon as we come back from this break. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour.
Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. First, I'd just like to say that for us humans, that we're so big and important in this world, this should be a very humbling experience. Uh, to me, it's amazing that something so small you can't even see in a microscope can, can bring the total world to its knees. It's just really an astonishing thing that's happening right now. I also would like to acknowledge Katie Porter for her questioning. I think she's amazing, and I really look forward to seeing more of her. Congressman, uh, we've all witnessed the last three and a half years of this president getting played like a fiddle by world leaders, but, but he's gotten away with everything. The Mueller report, the Puerto Rico impeachment, the list goes on and on and on. No matter what happened, he's gotten away with it. I, I call him Teflon Don. They used to call uh, Don uh, Gotti that. Anyways, um, do you think that this is going to be the one thing that will be able to stop this president, that it's going to take him down? Because nothing has is, nothing is worked so far, everything he's gotten away with so far. I'm just wondering if you think this will be the one, the one thing that will take him down. Thanks. Yeah, Cliff, um, I really do. I think uh, he's handled this so poorly. And even Republican members of Congress, uh, I'm going to stand up for, we often ask the same questions these days around the coronavirus with the same intensity because none of us are getting answers because Donald Trump uh, is afraid of the truth getting out there in so many cases on this. And he's handled it so incredibly poorly, we're seeing the stock market respond. And then his answers are things like bailing out oil companies when we need to be bailing out people uh, who should be home if they're sick and not going to work so you don't get more people sick. And that's what we're trying to do today and hopefully in a bipartisan way in Congress. So Donald Trump has done just about everything wrong. And I think people really do realize that. I, even my, my trolls that I normally follow on social media are, are significantly down on this one. And uh, I think, you know, even people who want to believe him for a lot of other reasons realize how tremendously poorly he has handled this. Yeah. George in Santee, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocans. Yes. Bernie Sanders, I thought, came up with the most detailed, comprehensive plan to deal with this pandemic. And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I know there's a, he put a plan out, Biden put a plan out. The one I'm watching is the one that's actually going to be voted on, George, and I think that's what we're trying to get done, which is things like extending unemployment comp, um, making sure we have paid sick leave, extending food benefits, because if we close down schools, don't forget for many, many kids, that's their breakfast and lunch, the meals they're going to get if they're poor kids. We've got to figure that out. Um, we're doing a bunch that is family-focused right now in the House of Representatives, if we can get this done, which I, I am still hopeful we will. That is the single most important thing right now we can do, but we know there's going to be other packages down the road. A lot of us are putting out suggestions, including uh, some of the items that Bernie mentioned. But what matters is what we do immediately, and uh, Nancy Pelosi is doing the right thing, and I hope that we'll be able to prevail with the Republicans. Yeah. Mitch McConnell has said this is just a wish list of liberal ideas. Uh, is he going to block anything you guys try? I think we'll be able to override what he originally said. And I think there is real work going on between some in the White House and our leadership. Good. That's good news to hear. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. We'll be back with uh, Congressman Pocan and more of your questions. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Esther Forbes's book, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. It was actually sent to me in 2010. It's a remarkable book. You'll recall I've talked about how every time our country reboots, it goes through a major transformation. It's the result of, or it follows an economic crash. Every time we do a positive transformation, and, you know, we've talked about the crash of 1837, the crash of 1856, the crash of 1889, the crash of 1929, all of which provoked very positive changes. I suppose you could argue the Civil War wasn't a positive change, but this is what provoked the Revolutionary War. This is from page 98 of Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. January 15, 1765, the trade, Merchant Row noted, has been much alarmed this day. Mr. Wheelwright stopped payment and kept his room. A great number of people will suffer by him. Nat Wheelwright was the first of many merchants to collapse that spring. During the war, merchants had increased their stock and speculated. Farmers had enlarged their farm. Those boom years were over. The Depression was begun, and in Boston, it lasted 20 years. January 19th, 1765. 
Very bad accounts. Dr. John Scully, shut up. Dr. John Denny, shut up. And Peter Bourne of the North End, by shut up, they mean close their businesses. Am unlikely to be a large sufferer by Scully. Now Mr. Rowe is really apprehensive. He is a cautious gentleman, no longer young. Even the walking was dangerous that day. Extreme bad and slippery. This is his diaries she's reading from. Next day was Sabbath. Mr. and Mrs. Rowe never missed services at Trinity, but did not go to church. My mind too much disturbed. Just as he should have been starting, his dear friend Joseph Scott had come up to see him very disturbed. Sure enough, next day, Mr. Scott had also shut down his business, and William Haskin and the company had been shut down as well. A bank failed for 170,000 British pounds. Mr. Savage fell in a fatal apocalyptic fit in his lawyer's office. Captain Forbes shut up his shop today, and much grieved for him, wrote one of the diaries. The merchants were going down like a house of playing cards. Each big house, such as Mr. Rowe mentions, carried innumerable small ones with it. Shipwrights, sailors, and sailmakers might suffer first, but tailors and peruki makers, button molders or soap boilers, silversmiths or braziers all followed. Rents and mortgages could not be paid. The clergy began to find more copper and less silver in the alms basin. Farmers drove mutton to town, could get no decent price, and angrily drove them home again. Only one-fifth of the usual numbers of ships cleared that water from Boston for the West Indies. Not only was the artificial wartime prosperity over, but the merchants could not pay the duties now demanded of them. They experimented in short runs along the coast or kept their ships laid up as one after another shut down. The stagnation of trade gave everyone, from Mr. Rowe and his fellow merchants like the young Mr. John Hancock, dining as elegantly as ever at the Royal Coffee House, to the meanest porter and the cheapest alehouse, a leisure to talk they had never enjoyed before. Boston went off into a talking jag that did not end until Lexington. That would be the shot heard around the world. Why was there no money to be made on the fine ships, which for a hundred years had been bringing wealth to Boston? Why was there no work for a willing, able-bodied man? Who was to blame? England's efforts to enforce her navigation acts had upset long-established trade habits, but she had not as yet actually collected enough money over here to pay her customs officials. It seemed to have been the general opinion from the top of the social ladder to the bottom that England was to blame. The overexpansion of the last 40 years probably had as much to do with it as England, but it was the meddlesome tyrant from overseas that was the scapegoat. King George III was popular. Their enemy was Parliament. Grenville, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, looked about for some other form of taxation that could actually produce the money. Controlling smuggling over so long a coast 3,000 miles away was proving expensive, impractical, and extremely unpopular. After talking with the colonial agents in London and asking for alternative suggestions, he put the Stamp Act through Parliament. I am not, however, he said, set upon this tax. If the Americans dislike it and prefer any other method, I shall be content, provided the money must be raised. As soon as the Stamp Act went into effect, which it never did, every legal document, every newspaper or commercial paper would need a stamp, costing from a half penny to 20 shillings would require very few officers to enforce and no breaking and entering of private property. As Grenville argued, it would fall fairly equally on all colonies and classes. But it was technically an internal tax, not an external like a customs duties, and its theory frightened the colonists. Whether or not England had the legal right to tax these colonies in any way she pleased does not seem to be settled yet. Probably she had, but it was the utmost folly to do so. This distinction, this is a quote, This distinction between internal and external taxes seems to be the inquirer today, as it did to so many in that day, almost a quibble. The one should be universally accepted through generations, and the other start men to their feet shouting, liberty or death has never been satisfactorily explained. Paul Revere and the world he lived in. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Joe in Lockahatchee, Florida. I hope I'm pronouncing Or Loxahatchee. Do I have that right, Joe? You're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you for doing what you're doing. On the news today, they announced that they're closing the voting polls, some of the voting polls, to protect the elderly against the coronavirus. What can you or we do to stop this voter suppression? 
Yeah, mm. actually, Joe, this is something because so much is evolving, and I think I'm trying to be very patient as I look at various solutions. Um, I saw Louisiana is going to be actually moving their primary date. I'm not sure this is a bad idea across the board. I'm not sure it's a good idea yet, but uh, you know, we can't have it where you have a bunch of senior citizens going out where there could be groups of people. In Wisconsin right now, we have an April 7th primary. We're trying to get people to vote absentee, but you also don't want to suppress people by, by not having them come out because they're afraid because of what's going on. So I am open to every conversation right now, and uh, I think we all need to be um, open to these conversations, uh, especially given that I think the next two weeks are going to be especially significant about what's happening with this virus. I got a uh, press release from Ron Wyden yesterday saying that he's introducing legislation in the Senate to provide the states with $500 million so that every state in the country can mail an absentee ballot to every single voter in their state um, between now and November for the November. I realize this doesn't help with the primaries, but for the November elections. Um, do you, did you know about that? Might that happen in the House? I, I have not, did not know about that, but I can tell you our friend John Nichols from The Nation wrote a significant piece on this recently. Like, what are we doing for backup plans just in case, and of course, uh, mail, uh, voting by mail would be one of the best options that you could do around that. So I will look to see what they're doing in the Senate. Um, but I think everything has to be on the table right now. You know, I think what we know is the next two weeks, followed by the next two months, are going to be the most important. But the next several weeks, especially important, to try to get that peak to go down so that we don't overtake our ability to handle this in the hospitals and our medical systems. We assume that uh, if we do that, you'll spread how many people will get the, the time over amount of time, how many people are going to get uh, this. Uh, in summer peak months, it'll go down significantly, but people will still be getting it, but we expect a spike back in fall. So there's a lot of things that we're still learning, um, and I think uh, around the elections, we have to have backup plans in place, and I think uh, that's a good suggestion is voting by mail. Judy in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Congressman, I'm a uh, volunteer tax professional that works with the uh, IRS grant program, the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance. And we're wondering, we had a site shut down, uh, so we're kind of shut out for the remainder of the tax season, and we've heard rumors that Congress may extend the tax filing deadline. Uh, Do you have any information on that? Yeah, that's one of the things being discussed. I'm not sure if it'll be part of today's package because today's package is trying to get um, support out there right now for people. Um, and then there's going to be some other economic, although this will have economic impact. What we do, there may be some other uh, packages that deal with it, but this is certainly one of the things being talked about. Marilyn in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am a mother of a soldier in Afghanistan, and you discussed part of my concerns. I have three issues I'd like to ask you about. I'm concerned. Um, if the numbers of COVID disease in the military are being suppressed, commanders in each theater don't have the accurate data with which to complete accurate force readiness and force depletion assessments. This is ultimately going to be a problem if there is widespread COVID disease. The second is our military hospitals abroad, such as in Landstuhl and Kuwait and Qatar, have they been allowed to make contingency plans to accommodate military members with serious respiratory illness secondary to COVID? And I'm just, as a nurse, I know that they need to know the number and degree of COVID disease in the military. Also, as a Coast Guard brat growing up, I know about the military connectedness of um, service-acquired illnesses. We don't know what long-term sequelae of COVID infection, especially pneumonia, might be. And the VA has to prepare a plan for these sequelae um, and treating them, accommodating them. Also, the diagnosis of COVID-19 disease must be made during time in service for any resultant illness or disability to be service-connected once um, the military member separates. It affects both their treatment, their care at the VA, the VA's budget, and their individual pensions. Can you speak to these concerns, please? Yeah, Marilyn, so I'm going to say it this way. You're raising many questions that we also have. Uh, the problem is we can't even get the most basics on anything right now. I think everyone is dealing with this and trying to move the ball forward, but in many cases, information is not being shared, sometimes because they just don't have it yet, sometimes because I think direction from uh, the administration has not been helpful. 
Right now, the main issue we're focusing on is just trying to make sure that we have test kits available for military personnel overseas, because one of the problems, they're not going to have a lab there, clearly, but by the time you get that test to a lab, if it's not within 72 hours, the material quality will degrade. And while you can use dry ice and other things to try to save it, you can also get false negatives after 72 hours. So there's a lot of issues that we're dealing with in the immediacy that I think your questions will come a little bit later about benefits and things if they actually get this down the road. But right now, uh, we want to make sure that every soldier uh, has the access to a test and the care uh, should they need this. One good thing I think I can share is that in general, and this is only in general, the younger you are, um, the stronger you are to this virus. And so hopefully that will work to our advantage. To, to the advantage of the young people in the military. It's going yeah, to work exactly. at the disadvantage of, of the, of the uh, long-time enlistees and, and the senior, senior officer corps, I would think. Yeah, although which, it's generally pro- 60 and up, which are the most dangerous ages, but there are a whole bunch of asterisks to that, Tom. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And they're, and, and they're retired out by that. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Congressman Mark Pocan, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Coming up on the science revolution this week, first, Trump is using the same logic on COVID-19 that he used for pesticides and pollution. And I'll explain why that's not a good thing. Nile Marian, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, is here. Can we stop mass extinctions? Eva Hamer, Legal Coordinator of Direct Action Everywhere, drops by on her article, Why I Went Topless at Costco. Plus, geeky science. This is what happens when public transit is free. But wait, there's more. Tune in to the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Kevin in Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening on KTRC. You're on the Earth Congressman Pocan. Thank you for taking my call, uh, Tom, and thank you for being there, Congressman Pocan. I wanted to ask for help with information because, well, as our free press is set up for profit only, I keep running into the paywalls, and the government isn't really putting out really good information or timely with what's on the CDC right now is from yesterday, after all. And can Congress do anything to influence major media outlets like Washington Post and the New York Times to let down their paywalls temporarily? Kevin, let me just hop in here real quick. Uh, New York Times yesterday announced that all of their uh, coronavirus information, news and reporting would be outside their paywall. So you should be able to go to nytimes.com and see that. But that said, let's uh, let's see what Congressman Pocan has to say. Yeah, I'll tell you, let, let me answer part of what you brought up in the question, since Tom answered that part, I'll say the sources I go to. Dr. Fauci, first of all, should be the only spokesperson, period, nationally on this issue. He has respect from everyone. He's a straight shooter. And uh, whenever we have uh, someone from the administration who's not giving us information, it's a disservice to uh, everything they care about and we care about happening. So Dr. Fauci should be the only person I follow anything he says. I've been following um, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is the former FDA head under Donald Trump, a Republican who works at the American Enterprise Institute, something I don't usually refer to, but he has been an incredibly good player in putting out information about the lack of lab access, et cetera, things that we need to address, and uh, the World Health Organization. Um, unfortunately, the CDC has not kept up with what they need to. They're not put, they, for a while, last week, uh, we had to write a letter. They took off the number of people who have been tested because they know the numbers were so low. Putting your head in the sand is not the answer. It's aggressively, proactively testing people. So the places I go, Dr. Fauci, um, Scott Gottlieb on his Twitter account, and uh, I, I follow the World Health Organization, and I think that will give you some good information as you're moving forward. Dave in Federal Way, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Congressman Pocan. You know, I don't want to hey. sound overly dramatic, but I, I think the Progressive Caucus is like the only thing standing between us and oblivion. And let me say why. Um, I just saw a report that Iran has built a huge uh, trench, apparently. It's so large, it can be seen from space. Now, the Iranian government is saying that that's for COVID victims. Okay, mass grave. Now, I don't believe the Iranian government. I don't think anybody else should. But let me say that what else it could be used for. It could be used for hiding aggregate for like an underground facility, aggregate material. It could be used for um, an, an underground nuclear detonation site. So my question is, two Americans and a British soldier were killed recently in Iraq. The Trump administration has increased the use of deadly force. Uh, it liberalized it, if you will. And um, with the Middle East being a tinderbox right now and so many things going on, is the Progressive Caucus remaining skeptical? Or are they holding this administration uh, to account? Yeah, uh, great question, Dave. So a couple of things I can answer to hopefully provide some peace. One, you know, the problem every time they do something, the administration is going back to Iraq, they're claiming the 2002 authorization to go into war gives them the ability to do that as long as Iraq is mentioned. Uh, and so they're using what was intended for Saddam Hussein now currently, uh, and that's not what the Constitution says. Article 1, Section 8 says that Congress has the power uh, to do this. So we're, we've been very uh, vigilant on that, and Barbara Lee, one of our members, has been the most strong on that issue uh, without question. But also, you know, this is exactly why we didn't want to pull out of the Iranian uh, nuclear deal, because we had inspectors, and if there was something like that, we would have had someone there already inspecting to see what that is. Now, I haven't seen the accounts. I, I can't speak to it, to it specifically, but were there something like that, that would have been covered 
uh, under the deal we, we previously had. And the fact that we gave that up under Donald Trump for a lot of bad reasons is just another example of why uh, this president has been so bad on um, foreign affairs and why we keep very vigilant on many of these issues around war and peace. Roger, uh, excuse me, Lauren in Boca Raton, Florida. You're on the Earth Congressman Pocan. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I really want to acknowledge your um, your humility and your compassion and your bold leadership. Question. The UK science chief, uh, Sir Patrick Valance, they've announced that the UK's approach to this is herd immunity. Business as usual, let nature run its course. Everyone, uh, majority, not everyone, every majority of the population um, contracting COVID-19 will create and stimulate antibodies, um, kind of like what Abigail Adams did in our country in her response to smallpox, um, injecting uh, herself and her children with it to build antibodies. It, and, and, and Congressman, you just mentioned how um, there's kind of a head-in-the-sand response here. Are we following suit? Are we just herd immunity? Is, is that the, the plan for the U.S. to deal with it? Yeah, Lauren, thanks for the question. So I don't think that's the plan. If there were a plan, I would be satisfied. I don't think Donald Trump had a plan for a long time. His plan was uh, this won't expand as fast. He was betting on that. He didn't want to have more numbers shown because he thought, one, he would look bad. Two, the markets would react poorly. He's way too late for that. So I think it's more out of ignorance than a mass plan like that. Um, having said that, let me say a few things I think are really important for people to know. Um, if you're under 15, and it's very unlikely you'll even show symptoms. There will be some, like in any biologic situation. But it's one of the things, that we can learn why you don't have a symptom when you're under 15, that would be very helpful for us moving forward. It seems like the younger and healthier you are, the better off you'll be. It'll be more like a, a flu. Um, for people who are 60 or above or with any serious medical condition, uh, that's where... We ask those populations not to be traveling right now. They certainly shouldn't be going in groups right now. In fact, when you're in your 70s, 80s, or even 90s, it's even more important. Um, I had a deal today, quite honestly, with uh, a doctor back in um, my hometown who wanted my 91-year-old mother to come in for a non-emergency visit, and I had to intervene and say, no, you're not. Uh, actually, it was today, I'm sorry, it was a visit. Uh, it doesn't make sense to have a 91-year-old traveling to a medical facility right now if it's not in a, a, a real situation just for a general um, uh, pickup. And the doctor told me that they're not getting clear information and they're doctors. So there's just so much that I think we all need to have as much goodwill that we're raising right now together to deal with this. Understand washing your hands, coughing into your elbow, having that, that social distancing right now is so very important. And if we do this together, especially in the next two weeks, we can really lower that peak. And uh, that's why I don't want to really go into the blame game as much as just say, right now we've got to get more people proactively tested. We have to get the labs ramped up so they can test people. And let's do common sense thing like making sure our troops overseas have tests. If we all work towards those goals, and Dr. Fauci, I think, has been so good in expressing those, uh, despite uh, some of the setbacks from the administration, we're going to be a lot better off. Roger in Bisbee, Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, good morning, Tom. Uh, good morning, Congressman, or good afternoon, I guess, for you. You know, I've heard several references recently about uh, surprise billings and LabCorp in particular, and that I just had that kind of an event with LabCorp and kind of got me doing a little research. I found they made $11 billion last year, and when I went in to get my blood test the last time, the requirement was to sign off that I'd pay anything insurance companies didn't pay. But anyway, uh, LabCorp has been pac manning everything up. And uh, so my question to, to the congressman is, how do, how do we get these commercial labs out of this, what I consider a continuing wealth transfer for a process? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the what should have happened, again, four to six, maybe even eight weeks ago, was as soon as we knew all of this, one, I mean, we could have used the World Health Organization kits, and then they still don't have a great answer on that. But to ramp up our public capacity through the public facilities, right now New York State, for example, is trying to make sure they can license, and they've been given permission to license other laboratories within their state. 
we just were so slow at dealing with this, and we're paying the price right now. If the capacity is only 25000 in a day, it doesn't matter if you can cover 989000 with test kits. That will take 39 days to get those people tested. And in three days, the samples did degrade. That's part of the problem. They weren't ready. They didn't respond effectively. And so I don't mind right now having to use the private facilities because I think we've got to do everything we can to increase uh, lab capacity. But it's because the wrong decisions were made early on. And uh, right now, I think the focus has to be just on expanding lab access, proactively testing people, considering some of these things like drive-through testing, but for people who need it, um, only having Dr. Fauci be the spokesperson. Um, that will establish the confidence we need. And if you address this as the health crisis it is, it'll help the economic crisis. Thank you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the state of Wisconsin, the second district in the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, his website is Pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And be sure to give him a tip of the hat and a thanks for, for uh, coming on and doing these national town hall meetings every week. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Measuring What Counts, the Global Movement for Well-Being by Joe Stiglitz, Jean-Paul Fatusi, and Martine Duran. And this is from the first chapter labeled Overview. The high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress also known as HLEG, builds on the analyses and recommendations of the 2009 Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress, also known as the Stiglitz-Senfetusi Commission, in highlighting the role of well-being metrics in policy and encouraging a more active dialogue among economic theory and statistical practice. The report makes explicit the often implicit assumptions hidden in statistical practices and their real-world consequences. Its central message is that what we measure affects what we do. If we measure the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. If we don't measure something, it becomes neglected, as if the problem didn't exist. There is no simple way of representing every aspect of well-being in a single number in the way GDP describes market economic output. This has led to GDP being used as a proxy for both economic welfare like people's command over com commodities, and general welfare, which also depends on people's attributes and non-market activities. GDP was not designed for this task. We need to move beyond GDP when assessing a country's health and complement GDP with a broader dashboard of indicators that would reflect the distribution of well-being in society and its sustainability across the social, economic, and environmental dimensions. The challenge is to make the dashboard small enough to be easily comprehensible, but large enough to summarize what we care about the most. The 2008 crisis and its aftermath illustrate why a change in perspective is needed. The GDP loss that followed the crisis was not the temporary one-off event predicted by conventional macroeconomic models. Its effects have lasted over time, suggesting that the crisis caused the permanent loss of significant amounts of capital, not just machines and structures, but also hidden capital in the form of lower on-the-job training, permanent scars on young people entering the labor market during a recession, and lower trust in an economic system rigged to benefit a few. Different metrics, including better measurements of people's economic insecurity, could have shown that the consequences of the recession were much deeper than the GDP statistics indicated, and governments might have responded more strongly to mitigate the negative impacts of the crisis. If, on the basis of GDP, the economy is perceived to be well on the road to recovery, as many governments believed in 2010, one would not take the strong policy measures needed to support people's living conditions suggested by metrics that inform on whether most of the population still feels in recession. Nor would one take measures to bolster the safety net and social protection in the absence of metrics on the extent of people's economic insecurity. These failings in the policy responses to the crisis were compounded by overly focusing on the consequences of public spending and raising government's liabilities, when this spending could take the form of investment increasing the assets in government's and country's balance sheets. The same follows when measures of unemployment do not reflect the full extent of a country's unused labor resources. 
The Beyond GDP agenda is sometimes characterized as anti-growth, but this is not the case. The use of a dashboard of indicators reflecting what we value as a society would have led, most likely, to stronger GDP growth than that actually achieved by most countries after 2008. This book also looks at progress in implementing the recommendations of the Stiglitz-Sen-Fatusi Commission since 2009, identifying areas that require increased focus by statistical agencies, researchers, and policymakers. The UN Sustainable Development Goals, agreed by the international community in 2015, clearly go far beyond GDP. But their 169 policy targets and more than 200 indicators for global monitoring are too many to guide policies. Countries will have to identify their priorities within the broader UN agenda and upgrade their statistical capacities, which, even in developed countries, are insufficient to monitor whether the agreed-upon commitments are being met. The international community should invest in upgrading the statistical capacity of developing countries, especially in areas where country data are needed to assess global phenomena, such as climate change or the world distribution of income. Inequality in income and wealth has today a central role in policy discussions in ways it did not in 2009. But important progress is still needed in a range of areas, such as measuring what happens at both ends of the income distribution, integrating different data sources, and measuring the joint distribution of income, consumption, and wealth at the individual level. When looking at inequality, it's also important to look at differences between groups. These are called horizontal inequalities. At inequalities within households. And the way resources are shared and managed, which are especially important in the case of wealth. We should also look beyond inequality in outcomes to inequality of opportunity. Inequality of opportunity is even more unacceptable than inequality of outcomes. But the operational distinction between the two is fuzzy, as we don't observe all circumstances that shape people's outcomes and are independent of their efforts. The book Measuring What Counts by Joe Stiglitz and Friends. And welcome back. Shannon in uh, Ladera Ranch, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi to both of you fabulous people supporting free speech and and free real facts. I so appreciate you every day, and I wish everyone could hear you. So thank you for that. I know time is precious. Um, my question is, I watched fabulous Katie Porter get the CDC head to actually agree to pay for all testing free to every person in America to go in and be tested. Of course, you tried to backpedal at the very end. And as I heard you say, Congressman Pocan, that the Republicans are making a mess of it. So I know that there is funding in place and you guys are doing your best. However, I'm wondering about the loophole they're going to use. Funding, you might have your $8 billion in funding that you've already got going. The problem is if they're going to send the funding only to people who can prove that they got a test and it was positive or that their friend did or whatever made them quarantine, uh, how are they going to do that? How are you going to be able to get the funds out? And will it take months to get payment for that anyways? Yeah, Shannon, I do think um, in this package today we will have it so that anyone who needs a test can get the test and doesn't have to worry about um, having to pay it out of pocket if that's the situation. So I really do think that's going to be addressed. Katie is a great questioner, but honestly, people have been doing that all week in different areas that maybe didn't get the same attention. Pramila Jaipal did a great job on making sure that uh, someone who's not a citizen right now could get access so we don't have an issue there. Um, we've been pushing the military and trying to get them to do their job. That's basically all we're doing as members of Congress at all these hearings right now is getting people in the administration who won't answer questions, who aren't giving public very much information or, quite honestly, unfortunately, sometimes misinformation, getting to the truth. And the bill will be, I think, really important to support families. It will provide economic stimulus to the country. And hopefully it'll be that catalyst that can fix some of what's happening with the markets, but really getting that flattened curve on people who will get access to this so that we can not overtake um, the, the capacity of the healthcare systems in this country. So I think you're going to have, a, hopefully, I'm, I'm very hopeful that this will happen, very strong bill. Jeanette, in Spirit Lake, Idaho, you're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Oh, thank you both. I listened to Bernie's address, and obviously that's the leadership we really need in a president right now. But I'd like to see if you agree with me, and if you do, that you can pass along this message that 
Bernie needs to be as simple and straightforward as possible and to specifically say that his democratic socialism is FDR democratic socialism, you know, because that is a remedy that this country will need, especially if we take, you know, the economic downturn that's possible. And also that he needs to specifically say that Medicare for all is not socialized medicine. It's the Medicare we have now improved and expanded to everyone so that we do not need... So, Jeanette, let's, uh, let's, we're, we're going to hit a break and in just so a second. Let's look. Congressman. Yeah, I, I mean, Jeanette, I, I think what I'm looking for, they've moved the location, we're doing this in a time of crisis, but a clear contrast, I think, where the two are on issues and what his vision is for the future, and many of the things you said are very important to be included. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls for him in just a moment. It's live on Free Speech TV and nonprofit radio all across the country. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Tom Harbin here with you. Jim in Atwater, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, first, uh, a comment and a quick question. This coronavirus must now be referred to as a Trump Republican caused pandemic. For him to not use a WHO test is a crime. He's causing this. We, we need millions of tests. Korea's testing 200,000. Anyhow, the uh, millennials, they have to come out. All you millennials got to understand, Joe Biden voted 
So you could not declare yeah. bankruptcy. And Bernie wants a jubilee. Jim, I'm going to stop that right there because that's not a question. Congressman? Yeah, I, I think the question that I got out of it, Tom, and if I'm, I'm incorrect, I apologize, is we just have to make sure in some of these places where we've seen these really long lines that we have enough polling places so people can vote. And now we may have to revisit on how the voting is happening. I, this idea of a vote by mail, I think, is intriguing. In Wisconsin right now for our April primary, we're trying to get people to get absentee ballots. So, you know, we need to make sure you have enough polling places so people don't wait in lines to vote, period. And I, I take that point uh, well taken. Jenny in Clio, Michigan. Is that Michigan or Montana? Yeah, Michigan. Hey, Jenny, you're on the air with Congress. Hi, um, it's good to hear from you both, and you work very hard. It's really concerning. I was a social worker, so this it's concerning containment of the virus. The big issue is, like, homelessness and the people in shelters. What kind of organization is there for helping these people and getting everything organized? I, I Nothing. Yeah, and let me add to that the children and, uh, well, and adults, too, that Donald Trump has in cages all over the country. Yeah, so there's many issues I could go into there, Tom. I, I think the best I can say is right now you're going to see we're going to have multiple packages, and uh, the homelessness issue absolutely is going to be um, going to have to be a, a part of this down the road. There's going to be other issues, even potentially in this package. You know, because we thought we were moving somewhere, but we haven't really seen where the final language is going to be here. We may have to be coming back even next week. You know, we're not supposed to be back. I think uh, eventually if they don't have us come to Washington, we still may have to figure out how to fly and to support various packages, and we're going to do what has to happen. We've put a lot of ideas in the Progressive Caucus to leadership around many of the subjects you just mentioned, and uh, I think you'll see more packages addressing these if they're not included in today's package. John in Minnetonka, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I am 67, and I am a member of the gig community. I'm not able to work other other jobs, and the way things are structured, there's 40 or 50 million of us who have to work a gig economy. I don't hear any talk in helping, you know, I hear talk about helping people with hourly and salary and unemployment benefits, but... My business just got shut down. I do, you know, like home and garden shows, that kind of stuff. It got shut down. I have no way of earning income. I don't have unemployment. Is anything being done to help people in the gig economy? And if so, please talk about it so we can relieve that stress. Yeah, John, so it has been. There's a number of proposals from extending unemployment to talking about the idea of the universal basic income during this period. I'm not sure where it's going to end up because our difficulty sometimes is with the Republicans on these issues. That's why it was so ridiculous when I think it was Kevin McCarthy said we're just trying to get a wish list in. This isn't a wish list of things. This is stuff that we need to do right now for your very situation. So definitely it's been part of our conversations. Where we get to with the Republican as these various packages come out, I can't tell you, but um, absolutely people are talking here in Washington about people who work in your industry in the gig economy. George in Garden City, Kansas. Yes, if they suspend uh, payroll tax, will that affect Social Security payments? Thank you. Yeah, and that's one of the questions we have. We don't think that's one of the best ways to go forward. I don't know whether or not... The White House is going to say it has to happen in order to get some of these other things to happen. That's part of what the conversations are about right now. But if you do reduce that payroll tax and take money out of Social Security, that would certainly be the wrong move to do for many, many reasons. So we just don't think it's the best way to do what we need to do right now, period. But that is certainly one of the byproducts we're watching out for, George. Remarkable. Congressman, we have about, actually, we have about 30 or 40 seconds. Thoughts on the coming week, what we should be doing, looking for, et cetera? Yeah, you know, I just, things are moving fast. Every day, a lot of information is coming out. You're going to hear a lot more worse information before it gets better. But uh, again, I think the most important thing, uh, just wash your hands on a regular basis, 20 seconds, hot water and soap. Make sure that you're coughing into your elbow. If you're sick, don't go to work. And we need to do the social distancing where we can. So group activities are not the best activities right now. We do this, we flatten the curve, we won't uh, overtake our healthcare systems, and we will be more like uh, South Korea and how they responded rather than Italy. So just have a lot of patience with your neighbors and friends right now, including people who may say troll-like things on Twitter because they're not necessarily getting the same information. Let's do this together. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Congressman Pokian. Thanks so much for dropping by again this week. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Have a great one. 
Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov, and uh, you can text him at, uh, or tweet him rather, at Rep. Mark Pocan. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die, like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. 
social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weda Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 